Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. It's good to be with you. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, we are here. Uh, it's springtime. How are you doing, Kira? Very well, thank you. Yeah, I, I understand you are celebrating um, an important, momentous anniversary this week, and I want to make sure that we talk about this. Tell That's us good. about your moment. That's very kind. If, if, if Yes, I guess if, if books get to have birthdays, and I'm not sure they do. Um, <laughs> Women in Green, Voices of Sustainable Di Design, the book that Lance Hosey and I wrote, is it came out um, 15 years ago today. This today. actually, yeah, very exciting. So um, I don't know, I, do we celebrate book birthdays? Yeah, I don't really think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a lovely thing. Yeah, well, uh. it's, it's more front of mind than it would be because of this podcast, Lindsay. So, I mean, I'm not sure I would, even occur to me to note it in the same way, except that I feel like the conversation is so alive and well because yeah. of the podcast. So oh, that's you. Nice. It is really like there's so much inspiration that came out of out of that book that I feel like we brought in to think just the way the book was the topics that it covered and the way that it engaged with different women from very different, you know, corners of the industry, but still you know, some common themes is totally, there is a lot, I feel like that we've, we've kept alive. It's so funny for me to think about where I was 15 years ago <laughs> and what that book meant to me at that time. I'm sure that a lot of people feel that way. Uh, it's just such a different, uh, yeah, I was, I, I remember being so impressed by it and, and like kind of just tickled to get to have a book with a lot of people that I knew <laughs> in yeah. a book that I could sort of, um, you know, take in all of their, all of their wisdom in one place. Yeah. I remember this time I came up to you, Kira, it was probably only like five years ago or so, where I was like, books, just, is that a, is that a, is that a decent career path? <laughs> and ah. like, no. <laughs> did I, did I shriek no at the top of my lungs? Yeah, you did. You were basically <laughs> like, this is not a thing that we do because it makes us money. Not I mean, a thing to yeah. pay the rent with. That in is case, in case listeners are wondering um, <laughs> whether this has been, you know, Kira's, uh, Kira's ticket to, uh, to you know, uh, wealth and stardom. Yes, it's not a, it's not a livelihood activity. It is certainly a um, soul feeding activity, however, and I wouldn't, yeah. you know, change a thing. I feel so, so lucky that it happened to me mm. <laughs> and that I was there at that moment to to well and that Lance was there too to help frame it in the way that we did it was really fun to frame it around questions and make it about conversations and not make it a you know it could have been a who's who it could have been it could have been a bunch of different things but mm -hmm. we really didn't want to do it that way and it was so fun and it made it so open-ended that's why it sort of feels like it we didn't finish a conversation we sort of started one so yeah, yeah, it's a it's a wonderful thing. It's I think it's it's thought provoking even now, but it's also this cool time capsule of the things we were grappling with at that time. And mm -hmm. I love that about 
what books have become. I feel very lucky that in my role now at ILFI, we, you know, Ecotone, which published the book, is still around and publishing books. And I just I hadn't thought about it in the same way. Also, I should say my partner writes books. And so I've come to appreciate so much more of what a book can do to change uh, to change things, you know, like how it how it shifts our mindset, but how it's also this kind of incredible artifact and like collective process that, you know, that that exists when you put a book together. All we can save also comes to mind, you know, where yeah. you sort of it it just is a books can be these incredible catalysts in a way that our other work doesn't always um, cover. And it's, yep. it feels great to me that we still have have ecotone to, as a as another tool in the toolbox, I guess. Um, Absolutely, it's it's yeah, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, and well, and I would also say um, biomimicry is having its twenty fifth anniversary this. I think. Oh yeah. Month. Yeah. Wow. Um, which is a book that, I mean, absolutely has influenced so many people. Um, anyway, it just, yeah. yes. So to your point about a moment in time and also sort of what it coalesces and what can come up, you know, what happens around a book, um, it does yeah. feel there. Cause it's, I think it's interesting now to, to question whether do our books, do they serve the same function now as they did 30 years ago or something? And I, I went through a period where I was like, no, I don't want to do another book. If we did something, another round of it, it would be something different. It would be a website or it would be whatever. But I actually think the the whole notion of the book and there being that moment and it actually coming together in that way, it still very much matters. And it still has a gravity that we don't quite have in other ways in magazine mm -hmm. articles or in, you know, digital formats or other things. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. It makes me wish we had more of like a, if we were really on it and we are not dear listeners, we would have like a cool, uh, you know, LinkedIn group for all of us where we could ask you what, like, what books would you like to see exist in the world that don't exist right now? Or like, what do you think we could use a book on right now? Cause I want to know as selfishly we have that opportunity at Ecotone. So yeah, like a, you know, I think we can find a way to foment that question online, Lindsay. <laughs> probably could. I like that idea. I would just love to hear people's thoughts about like, what, what, what book would you read right now if it existed, but it doesn't exist about the work we do. Uh, so, you know, um, yep. I love it. I think we'll that's a great idea. Um, <laughs> we'll find a way to ask it. And it is funny because I do think that we couldn't do the same book, that book that we wrote 15 years ago, would not be the same at all today. In fact, yeah. I'm not sure that the, the masses, the way that the world works now would not necessarily respond positively to a male and female writing that book. <laughs> oh yeah, that would have been so, yeah, I wonder. You know? <laughs> I wonder, yeah, yeah. Well, it was of its time and wonderful for everything that, that, uh, well, that it brought you. us. And Yes. Happy anniversary to the book. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it, I will also say that our guest today, I, we did interview our guest today for the book. So it's a nice happenstance. We did not plan it this way, but it's a nice happenstance that um, we're talking to Lori Kerr today. Um, Lori, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's a treat for me. And uh, listening to you talk about the book is a nice walk down memory lane for me too. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, let me give a brief introduction of Lori for those of our listeners who are not familiar with her, and then we will jump into our questions. 
Um, architect Lori Kerr is a national leader in green building and climate policy. She is a principal climate advisor at USGBC and the president of LK Policy Lab. She was deputy director for green building policy at the NYC mayor's office of long-term planning and sustainability under Bloomberg and helped develop New York City's influential sustainability plan and green building and energy efficiency policies. Um, she launched the City Energy Project at the Natural Resources Defense Council, and it's, it and its successor have assisted more than 30 major American cities in developing large-scale efficiency policies. Um, so, Lori, to get us started, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about how and why you got involved in architecture, sustainability, and policy, any, of the, any or all of those <laughs> things. What's been your path? Well, um, I'll start a little bit later down the road. Uh, I'd been an architect for, oh, almost 15 years. I'd worked for other architects. At that point, I had a, my own uh, small architectural practice in New York. And um, uh, I had always been interested in, uh, I guess, uh, what wasn't called sustainable design, but maybe uh, green building, but uh, they had their heyday and then um, they fell away in the 80s. And so I just practiced like everybody else. And in the late 90s, uh, something started to emerge that was called green building and sustainable design. And I thought, that sounds great. How can I do some of that? And probably not in my own little firm. So uh, I was friendly with uh, the editor of Oculus in New York. And I said to her, Do you, would you let me write some book reviews for you on uh, sustainability? And I thought that would be a great way to educate myself on what was going on. So I wrote some reviews and uh, I reviewed a book called uh, Sustainability White Papers by, uh, and, and there was a piece in there by Hillary Brown and she wrote about a um, program that New York City had, which was uh, green buildings for New York City government buildings, which is a big thing because New York City does about a billion dollars worth of uh, construction on its own buildings every year. So huge portfolio. So I found out about that program, applied for a job there. Hillary was leaving and I kind of took her old job and uh, I was pretty much off and running um, at that point. It was a thrilling job. Uh, we worked on everything from libraries to daycare centers. Uh, and at that time, it was the field, as you probably all remember, was really evolving quickly. There were no real answers. It was all fluid. We were all, actually, I felt we were all inventing it as we went along. So uh, that was the beginning of this journey for me. I love that. Um, and I, I love the Oculus reference too and, and sustainability white papers. What a great um, piece of the origin and the, the beginning of that arc. Um, so Lori, one thing I was, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about from your perspective, People that are these days getting into sustainability, particularly on, in, interested in the policy realm, what should they be good at? What should they be interested in? 
everything, basically. <laughs> um, but I would say three, three things are very helpful. And, you know, one thing is actually it doesn't exactly matter uh, what you've mastered, but hopefully you will have mastered something. For example, uh, after DDC, I moved to uh, uh, the mayor's office of sustainability for the city of New York, and we did the plan to green New York City, Plan YC. And in that office, there were people who come from planning backgrounds, from a historian, uh, somebody who had been a lawyer. I was the only architect uh, in, in that office. But everybody had mastered something, and so they brought with them some base of knowledge beyond sustainability and also uh, some real world experience. So I think that's very, very valuable. Secondly, of course, at this point, sustainability is so um, mature. I would say uh, have some pretty deep knowledge of sustainability is very, is necessary. And then finally, I'd say analytic skills. Policy is all about impact. If you have a good policy, it has a big positive impact. Uh, if you don't, uh, either you're doing things that are too small or things that are ineffective. So having a strong anal analytic base is valuable. And I think of the most valuable tool, analytic tool I have is the back of the envelope calculation. So early on in my career in New York, I knew how many buildings we had, how many apartments we had, uh, how, many, how much carbon was emitted per square foot. Uh, it's seven kilograms per square foot in case you wonder uh, in the city of New York. So all those numbers I'd have right at the tip of my tongue. So if any question came up, or if most questions that came up, I would be able to kind of get a sense of how big things were right then and there. I love this point, Lori. I mean, there's a couple of things about it. One is that I just feel like I've noticed this about really great people who work in the policy realm, that they somehow have these statistics in their head and that they can kind of you know, recite them on command. And it does feel like so incredibly important and also something I've never been great at. And I admire so much. So this is a this is a pro tip for sure to that that um, that that people should be ready to master that. I also just yeah want to kind of give a really underscore this point about how great it is to have people who know sustainability but who also kind of know something else, um, the discipline beyond the the field. And I think I think that's something that we're seeing more and more with people coming into the profession now that they, they have a sustainability background, but it doesn't always mean that they, they have anything else to draw from and having yeah. both is really, is really helpful. Um, okay. Well, so, so let's get into this a little bit more, just the, the day-to-day of what um, you have been doing. I, can you give us a little bit more of a sense of what it, like what the city work has been like for you over the years? What's, what's been the scope of your your work and the roles that you've held? Well, in New York City, um, uh, I came in really at the beginning of uh, 
the effort to, to green the city of New York. So uh, in the early 2000s, New York was behind. Everybody else had done a lot. And uh, um, a bunch of folks uh, at my department, Department of Design and Construction, but Department of Buildings, uh, Sanitation, uh, it was kind of a groundswell. Uh, this group got together and said, you know, we can do this building by building, vehicle by vehicle, or we could have a much bigger plan. Um, so uh, that got going. I got myself on every committee and I said, look, I'll write up the report, knowing that then you hold, uh, you're actually shaping the big picture thought. So we wrote up or we, we figured out what we thought we should be doing in New York. And I wrote it up and it sat on a shelf and it sat on a shelf for a long time. But then New York City was growing and uh, Deputy Mayor Doktorov realized that um, we were outgrowing all the infrastructure that New York had been built on. So New York has about, uh, seven and a half million people in 1950. Uh, you have the uh, flight to the suburbs, a million people leave. And then gradually in the 90s, it comes back and by 2005, it's going to exceed you know, the suit of clothes it had. It needs more. And Dan realized that the best way uh, going forward to the for the city was to do more with less and sustainability was gonna be a key to solving uh, that population issue. And so he set up this office. Uh, I was really lucky to find my way to it. And uh, we were all off and running. And um, uh, I had the job of uh, looking at what we should do with the city's buildings because I was the kind of sacrificial architect on the team. So um, uh, I remember one day uh, sitting there trying to figure out, you know, I think the carbon problem was on our minds uh, then as well as now. And I was talking with this uh, doyen of, of the city's real estate world, real estate board of New York, and talking with her about what we might do. And she heard me and she looked at me with sort of pity in her eyes. And she said, darling, you really don't know anything about anything, do you? And that was <laughs> kind of the beginning of it. And that's sort of, maybe that's why I started mastering all those numbers. Cause she, she then sent me to some of the data uh, records and so forth that, that were then useful. So out of that, we did a lot. Um, uh, the, there was the Greener grading, Greater Buildings Plan, which was the biggest thing that we did. Um, at that point, people weren't really looking at buildings for energy issues. They were really looking at power plants. They were looking at cars. We said, no, buildings matter. We had seen the, the city's early greenhouse gas emissions inventory. 75% of emissions came from energy used in buildings. So we knew we had to address that. But um, 
there were no models to deal with the existing buildings, which was what we realized was the huge problem. So we had to make it all up. And we said, oh, the building code has to, it has to address existing buildings. And we have to get data, buildings have to benchmark, they have to audit, they have to know what they can do. And so we put together this whole uh, group of strategies. And then we, uh, with uh, Russell Unger at Urban Green, we launched a whole task force to green New York City's codes and regulations. And one of the things that I'm most proud of, we launched something called the Mayor's Carbon Challenge. And we challenged um, all of the uh, cities, the, the hospitals and universities in the city to reduce their carbon emissions by 30% in 10 years. Everybody signed up from Columbia University to Sloan Kettering. And that thing, uh, that program has gone on through many people managing it over the last 12 years. And it now encompasses 10% of the uh, square footage in the city of New York. So a real uh, success. And we didn't expect that. That was one of those sleepers that, that really worked. That's uh, so incredible. And just incredible to hear like how it all started, this notion that it started with Dan Doctoroff realizing that Pee Wee Clicker didn't have enough resources for all the people. It's so cool. I've never heard that story before. And, and I think these stories are so incredibly important for us to ask, like, okay, well, how are we going to do this in other cities? Or what was, you know, New York is like no other city. And yet we also need to figure out um, what worked there. And so, yeah, thank you. This is, it's just gems of stories. Um, I want to ask you from this whole experience, what you're most proud of. Um, you mentioned the, the carbon, the mayor's carbon challenge being you know, one that was a what was particularly exciting for you. But if you look back on on that work with the city, what what stands out for you, either personally or professionally, that you that you're proud of having accomplished? Well, there are the particular things that we did, but that they're not the things that are, make me kind of the happiest. Uh, I'd say two things that are a little less tangible give me a lot of pleasure. One is I think we really changed the conversation. So when, as I was saying, when we came into this, everybody was focused on cars and power plants, buildings didn't seem to matter, existing buildings, not so much. And we refocused the conversation on buildings because 75% of our carbon emissions came from energy used in buildings in New York. So, you know, some of those big picture issues have really stood the test of time. They didn't change. Also, we focused on the large buildings because 2% of the, there are a million buildings in the city of New York, but just 2% of them, the largest buildings over 50,000 square feet, uh, constitute half the square footage and half the energy use. So we, if we could get it that half, it would be a very easy place to start. And that was something looking at, uh, Department of City Planning's numbers just jumped out off the page at me one day that that 2% was half. So the, those big picture things, we had some strategies, I think focusing on data has 
formed some of the basis of things that go after that. But other things focusing on retrocommissioning and audits, maybe not so much. So, you know, the actual strategies, it's a mix. But um, the other big piece besides the conversation was really uh, changing the conversation was creating a community of concerned and active professionals. So as Marilyn Davenport noted, I really didn't know anything. So because of, and none of us did, uh, we had to kind of make a stone soup here. So uh, we had a lot of working groups and those working groups were not just for show to, you know, to pretend that we were interested. We needed help. We needed people to tell us what they thought, what would work and what didn't work. And that went on for years. And what happened is that that generated a community of really engaged and active professionals who continue, who've continued that conversation. It's gone in many, many directions, but I think our work had an awful lot to do with, with uh, uh, kicking that, that whole process off, which now of course ha entirely has a life of its own. Mm. Yeah, but, well, I mean, I, I, which is wonderful, but it is, it's, it is a, I think this is a really important point that you're bringing up that the community that has engaged over the years, it was because you actually needed people, you know, it wasn't just that you were trying to get a group rallied around an idea you had, it's that you were trying to learn, gather information, data, and uh, yeah, all of that. And that, that has a way of bringing people together in our world that I'm always so inspired by and and I, I mean, and just knowing the community in New York City today that works on carbon and buildings, it's just so cool <laughs> that you can yes. say like, oh, that was. It is a great that. group. And I, I do think there's something about, I think the, a lot is often said about going out to the community and, and getting quote community engagement. And sometimes it's thought of a, as a check the box effort. Yeah. And I think if it's done that way, it maybe doesn't do that much. But if you really are honest enough and recognize that you really do need the input of all these voices, then I think it, it can become something big Yeah, in totally. the long run. Totally. Yeah. I love this. Well, okay. So we now we want to sort of fast forward a bit and start talking about today and the road ahead. So I want to ask you first, where did you think we would be, let's say in the year 2020 as a, as a movement, as an industry, where, do, how do, um, did you have visions of the time that we're in now and how do they compare to the reality? Um, I don't think I knew. I think we were very excited to put out ideas like 30% carbon reductions by 2030. I don't think we had any idea of the end game mm -hmm. and um, how I think we followed it like everybody else. It was, uh, oh, you have to reduce by 80% by 2050. No, 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 it has to be 100%. So we've all been following this somewhat moving target. And I think at that point, we were so thrilled to get started we didn't know. I don't think I imagined it, how dire uh, things were going to be with respect to climate change at this point, how 
uh, utterly critical. It was gonna be that we move more quickly and more effectively. But so that's on the downside. On the upside, I don't think I had any idea how relatively easy this was going to be to tackle. So because of the plummeting cost of clean power, because of associated technologies like heat pumps, I mean, we can do this and we can do it uh, certainly for new buildings really fairly easily for existing buildings. It's more of a stretch, but we know what to do. It's a matter of having the, the wherewithal and the money to do it. Um, and that's really different because when I started, our only tool was energy efficiency, really. And um, there's obviously kind of a limit to that. Um, certainly, yes, there was some solar panels you could put on a roof, but in New York with the density, that wasn't gonna do a lot. So it was really down to energy efficiency and you can only squeeze so much blood out of a stone, right? It's, um, but luckily, that's not the only thing that we can do now. And, and obviously there's electrification, there's green power. And so those things are joining efficiency as the strategies we, we can use now. But um, you know, if you look at our codes, they're stuck in that energy efficiency moment. And um, you know, one question that I have, or one thought that I have is that if we're gonna get from here to there in the next 28 years, uh, all of these systems have to become more nimble and uh, we have to learn from what's not working and we have to get the math right. Lori, I love so much of that. Uh, you've touched on so many important things. Um, I, I can't, yes, there's several things I want to draw out from that. Um, but I particularly love hearing you say, you know, we can do this and we know what to do. I, I actually used those two sentences in a talk I, I gave just yesterday. Um, and because I do think it, people need to be reminded that it isn't, it isn't a mystery anymore. You know, like there, some of the moments in time that you were, these stories you've been describing is when we were really trying to figure it out. And to a large extent, we know now some of what has to be done. There's gonna be a lot of stumbling blocks. There's gonna be a lot of learning from what doesn't work and all those things that we need to do and we need to do it better and faster and all you know more effectively. But um, we do know what, what we need to do. So I think that's really inspiring actually. And I think it helps for people to hear that. Um, so I just, but I'm curious too about in the world of, I mean, a little bit more about sustainability and buildings today. And, you know, what do you see as the areas of major progress and maybe where there's really lack of progress and we need that more? What, what do you see there? So again, just to underline that point, uh, we were sort of stumbling around in the dark it was that the world has changed around us in some very good ways that will enable us to solve this problem much, much more easily than we ever could have thought. So we were doing the best with, with the tools that we had at that point. So now we know, look, we have to get new and existing buildings off fossil fuel as much as we can. It's gonna be harder for existing. So that's gonna be logistically much more difficult and other tools might have to be come into the mix, uh, like 
maybe green hydrogen or things like that. Uh, we don't know, but we do know that that's what we need to do, even if we don't know every uh, last strategy that we're going to use. And we know we're going to have to rein in peak heating and cooling loads so that we don't have to pay for a bloated grid that has to heat buildings, all the buildings in New York State when it's uh, minus 10 degrees. So those are the great big moves we need to make. And then it's a question of how are we going to make that happen? So we're really, we're really in a good place, I'd say that way. But we have to get out of our own way on this. And I think there are really a couple of things we need to do because this, this is a huge problem. If we're not serious about it, uh, we're not gonna solve it. There's really no assurance that we're gonna solve this problem. And I think somehow in many ways we act as if we know that we're gonna solve this so we don't have to focus like a laser on it. I don't think that's true. Uh, success is not assured. So what do we need to do to get there? We've, we have to stop letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Case in point, uh, nuclear power. Germany decided after Fukushima that it would get rid of its nuclear power. And look where they are right now, dependent on Russian gas. And that's funding the war in the Ukraine. Cuomo did the same thing in New York State, closed down Indian Point power plants before we had the offshore wind. And now, in the meantime, we've had to build a couple of new um, gas-fired plants in, in, New York, in uh, the Hudson Valley. Not great. Um, so that's one thing. Another one is, I think we have to really sharpen our pencils and, and think about what's big and what's small. So, uh, for example, what is the real impact of embodied carbon? I know it has an impact and I'm not wanting to diminish that in any way, but I am frustrated by the fact that there's a number that's been out there of uncertain provenance that says 11%. And having done some analytics on some work by Rocky Mountain Institute, I'd say it's less than half that. But at any rate, we're not even having that discussion. That number floats out there without anybody questioning it and any uh, hard numbers being delivered, that's not gonna get us to the right place in the end. We have to be more, uh, more curious about uh, what the right answers are. And then I think we have to be more nimble and hard-headed about um, the policies that are working. For example, our energy codes, they don't address carbon. It's 2022. When will they? This is really serious. But that's, you know, there are other things that, so everybody is trying to do better than the codes, but the codes aren't directionally dealing with carbon at all. So that's a problem. But other policies that aren't working, do we know whether purchasing RECs is going to uh, induce new carbon neutral power? I mean, at this point, something like 86% of all new power generation in the United States was uh, fossil fuel free. So what are those wrecks doing? 
we need to know if we're going to spend time encouraging that, or should we spend our time elsewhere? Other things in a similar vein, um, we all hate sprawl, but do we really seriously think that our policies are going to get Americans out of their cars other than in two or three very liberal cities? I don't know. So, you know, we need to take a hard look at these things, uh, be willing to accept the answers because again, I think if we waste our time on strategies that won't work, we will not solve this problem and we have to solve this problem. So uh, it's in that vein that, that I'm sort of encouraging our community to be more critical and hard-nosed. Mm. I love this. I wish we had like a whole other hour to talk to you about some of the issues you just brought up. And, and I do want to just call out how refreshing it is to, to hear the perspective of someone that's asking questions at that scale. It's one of the things I, I um, harp on sometimes on the podcast that I think we all get kind of caught up in our own little worlds of metrics and goals that we set for ourselves that, you know, are somehow related to carbon and climate and environments and such. But we very rarely kind of zoom out far enough to, as you said, what look at what's big and what's small um, and, and make sure that the industry as a whole is staying focused on the differences between those and um, giving things the right amount of attention. So yeah, I wish we could talk more about like, what are those big things? And um, well, may maybe some other time, but we are about to um, wrap up and we have one last question that we love to ask people, Lori. So um, we'd like to, to ask you who you are most inspired by these days in terms of leaders uh, or really anyone in, in your life, um, what keeps you going? Well, of course, Greta Thunberg comes to mind. She's so incredible and clear and accurate. But then after her, I would say everyone. You know, the last 20 years for me has been this enormous, exhilarating conversation with, you know, hundreds of people, I'm sure just as it has been for you. And, um, you know, we're constantly learning from each other. And, you know, that's the, that's the direction, that's the big cause for hope that we really will solve these problems because it really is uh, in our world, a very engaged and broad conversation. So it's been such a thrill to be part of it. Ah, well, it's been such a thrill to have you. Um, thank you so much, Lori, for, for being with us. This has been amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I hope I wasn't too much of a, a curmudgeon. Uh, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. <laughs> no, I, I, at least I landed on a, a message of hope. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You did. And I just, I think this has been a wonderful episode of just the stories from the front lines, you know, of, of doing this work. And we're really honored that you took the time. Um, so thank you for being with us. And with that, we are going to wrap up the podcast for the week. So thank you all for listening to the Design the Future podcast. Please uh, leave us a review on Apple if you haven't yet. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.